Today's scripture reading will be taken from two passages. The first is um, Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, and then we will read from Genesis 29, 31 to 35. Romans 5, 6 to 11, reading from the ESV. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still en we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be by saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then from Genesis 29, 31 to 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Thanks, Vibs, for reading scripture for us. And a very good morning to all gathered here. Uh, before we begin, uh, just a quick plug. We do have a book table on the third floor, and uh, there's this book that I want to kind of commend to us. It's titled, Are You... 100% sure you want to be an agnostic. Uh, so I'm happy to give this book away to the first person who raises their hands. Uh, you may have a friend that you're trying to share the gospel with, or you may be wondering about the faith yourself. So just raise your hand and come and get the book from me. After the yes, I do have someone there. Great. Oh, Siang Teng, you're going to pass the book. Thanks, Siang Teng. It's not a booby prize, so feel free to raise your hands. All right, let me pray for us as we come to the Word together. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you indeed for how you are a good God. And we pray that as we come to your Word, we ask that you would quieten our hearts, help us to hear you and to receive from you. Father, we acknowledge our need for your help. We pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, Amen. An unloved wife struggles to win the affection of her uncaring husband. A jealous spouse is barren and bitter. A hand-packed husband is caught between two bickering wives. Two rival sisters jostle and scheme to get what they want. A deceitful father-in-law tries to exploit his son-in-law. You no, know, this isn't a description of the latest Korean drama, it is the real-life story of the biblical characters uh, as we come across them in this chapter, particularly Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel. You know, this is not a pretty tale with impeccable characters. You know, as we go through this passage together, we see that this is an unvarnished account of flawed men and women, sometimes responding to one another and their circumstances sinfully. The Bible is very honest about the imperfections of the characters. Like them, we also struggle. We struggle with unfulfilled desires, with broken relationships, with anger, with fear, as well as the disappointment of our own flaws and failures. Now, so far, we've seen how Jacob has been through a lot. After lying to his father to get his brother's blessing, Jacob had to leave home to flee from his murderous sibling. And his boss, who is also his uncle, Laban, 
has tricked him, as we heard last week, into marrying the wrong daughter. And Jacob's woes worsen in our passage. In this family drama, we, we see four things, really, four characters. An unloved wife who craves affection, number one. Number two, a jealous wife who schemes a worldly solution. Number three, two rival sisters who make a superstitious deal. And number four, a deceitful father-in-law. You know, as we look at Jacob's dysfunctional family, you know, this is our key takeaway. This really is the big idea as we come to this passage this morning. Uh, despite our faults and flaws, we have a God who is faithful to keep His promises and to accomplish His plan to save sinners like us. And in spite of us, right? Not because of us. And just as we see the flickering flame of a candle burn most clearly in a dark room, so we see the light of God's grace and mercy even more clearly against the dark backdrop of human weakness and folly. So I pray that this passage encourages us, you know, whatever struggles or trials we may be going through, regardless of how messy our lives may be, Jacob's story reminds us that God is gracious and merciful. And He can work through our shortcomings and our failures for our good and His glory. You know, friends, it is precisely in our weakness, not in our strength or accomplishments, but in our weakness, that we come to know God's grace is greater than all our sin. So number one, let's look first at unloved, an unloved wife craves affection. As Bibiana read for us from chapter 29, verses 31 to 35. In verse 31, it says, Leah was hated. And I think we can understand why. Jacob despised his first wife. You know, she was a result of his father-in-law's cunning. He was deceived by his father-in-law Laban into marrying her. Leah was a constant reminder to Jacob of that painful, painful episode in his life. You know, as far as Jacob was concerned, Leah was persona non grata, right? unwelcome and unwanted. Not the woman he loved and not the woman he wanted to marry. And Jacob probably made this very obvious to her. You can imagine the, the testy, frosty relationship that they had. Leah, however, was desperate for her husband's love. You know, but what could possibly draw his affection away from Rachel, her favorite sister. Well, this passage tells us that when the Lord sees how Leah is rejected, he opens her womb and causes her to conceive. And this really tells us a, a key truth about God. He is merciful and compassionate. He sees. Isn't it remarkably encouraging that he sees the affliction of this despised wife? And he shows grace to those who are marginalized, unloved, and oppressed. You know, how different God's thoughts are from ours, how different His ways are from ours. We are typically attracted by beauty, by strength, by success. But God is not like that, is He? God draws near to those who are despised, who are downtrodden. As it says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the broken-hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And indeed, when Jesus comes, He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He delights to receive us. And he delights to help us see our spiritual need so that we come to Him and turn to Him for help. Leah, who craves Jacob's affection, hopes having children will endear her husband to, he, to her, especially since her sister is barren. So maybe she thinks she has a chance, right? If, if she has children, then maybe she can come across looking better than her sister. And the names of Leah's children reflect her desperation. Right? Reuben, the name of her firstborn, means see, a son. Leah hopes that Reuben's birth means God has seen her affliction and, then her soul, and so her husband will also see that she has a son, and hopefully he would be affectionate towards her. But sadly, this isn't the case. So Leah hopes her second son, 
Simeon will change things for the better. And his name sounds like Hebrew for heard. Leah hopes God will hear of her plight and turn Jacob's heart to her. And, he, and she hopes that Simeon will be the child that accomplishes that for her. But it doesn't work. Nothing changes. The name of Leah's third son is particularly poignant. She calls him Levi, meaning attached, in the hope that when Jacob sees that she has now three children, he will become attached to her. Alas, nothing changes. Now, Leah has faith in God. She's a woman who has faith, but there is a struggle in her faith, although she rightly acknowledges that children are a gift from him. Her struggle is that she sees God's blessing as a means for her own ends. She sees God's blessing in a self-centered way, as, as a way to get what she really wants. These children are like a stepping stone for her to get affection from her husband. You know, how might we also view God in a similar way? Do we see His blessing simply as a, a way to get what we really want? Do we value the gifts that He gives more than the giver Himself? But you see how God begins to work through Leah's disappointments. Not to change her circumstances, but to reshape her heart and to grow her faith. With the birth of her fourth son, Leah begins to realize that she's been going at it all wrong. She begins to realize that her chief joy shouldn't be found in her husband, but her chief joy is found in God Himself. And therefore, she names her son Judah. And this is really the, this is the first name that is not self-referenced, that has no reference to her circumstances. She simply says, let's call him Judah because that means praise. Right? Leah learns to look beyond her circumstances and to look to God himself. And her circumstances haven't changed. Still the same circumstances, still the same unloving husband. But now she says in verse 35, this time will be different. This time, I will praise the Lord. You see God's work in Leah's heart. Oh, beloved, what can we learn from this? I think Leah's example encourages us to be content in God, to praise Him even if our circumstances have not improved. God's not here to fix our earthly problems necessarily, but He's here to change our hearts so that we grow to love Him to trust Him, and to truly rest in Him. You know, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4. Right? He, he says he's learned to be content in whatever situation he's in. And you think, so Paul, tell us your secret. Right? How are you able to be content and to have joy regardless of your circumstances? And Paul gives us the secret to contentment in Philippians 4 verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know, when Paul says that, he's not giving us a blank check to ask for whatever we want and then expect God to give it to us. No. Paul is saying, whatever our lot, we can praise God. Why? Because God changes our hearts. Love Him, rest in Him, even amidst our trials, even if our circumstances do not change. I can do all things through Him strengthens me. And that's something Leah learns in these verses. Second, a jealous wife schemes a worldly solution. In we'll read chapter 30, verses 1 to 13. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in a place of God? was withheld from you the fruit of the womb. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give ch children on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. 
Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. So Rachel is jealous of Leah's four sons. You know, and this is really ironic. You, know, you notice how each sister wants what the other has. Right? Leah, who has children, wants Jacob's love. Rachel, who has Jacob's love, wants children. You see the discontent and you see the tension in those dynamics. And Rachel lashes out at Jacob in frustration. Right? She says to him, give me children. Right? Kind of blaming her husband for not being able to have children. You know, give me children or I shall die. You know, what does this reveal about Rachel's heart? I think we see how her heart is so gripped by her desire for children that life isn't worth living if she doesn't have them. You know, children are a gift from God. Yes, that's true. You know, we, we give thanks to God for the growing numbers of children we have in this local body. But even divine blessings can become idols in our hearts. You know, good things like marriage, a husband's love, good things like children, work, security, and success can become the centre and focus. They, give, they can become the driving motivation of our lives. You know, we keep thinking about them. We, we, we keep wanting them. And, and we keep fearing losing them or we, or we fear not having them. We begin to trust in them more than we trust in God. And we depend on our idols for identity, for significance, for purpose. And we, we see that in Rachel, don't we? You know, her, her identity is wrapped around being a mother. And if she can't be a mother, then life isn't worth living. And what idols do we cherish in our hearts? I think this is an opportunity for us to come before God honestly, to examine our fears, examine our desires, and to bring our fears and desires into the light of God's Word. You know, ask God to search our hearts with these questions. You know, what, what do I want in life that I cannot do without? You give it some thought, even this afternoon. You know, what, what do you want? in life that you really cannot do without. You know, what, what do I fear losing the most? You know, what, what keeps me up at night? What leads me away from trusting in God? Where, where am I tempted to put my confidence and my hope in, apart from God? You know, and oftentimes, we are also blind to our own idols, aren't we? You know, we don't always notice the things that we give ourselves to. So I encourage us to, to find a godly Christian friend or family member and, and invite him or her to speak into your life. Give them permission to ask us these questions and, and prayerfully ask them these questions as well just to encourage one another to see how our hearts are doing before God. You know, we, we see how Rachel is consumed by envy, and she refuses to rejoice with her sister even over the birth of her nephews. Right? She's like this really grumpy auntie who just refuses to be happy. Right? She's not even thankful for her husband's love. You know, she feels only anger and frustration. And you begin to see the, the symptoms of idolatry in our life. Right? Our, our idols hinder us ultimately from being grateful to God. You know, instead of thanking Him, we resent how He hasn't given us what we want. You notice how idolatry makes us turn in on ourselves. We don't notice the people around us and we surely don't notice God. We become selfish and self-centered and the world revolves around me and what I want. You know, just think, think about this, right? How have our idolatrous fears and desires made us complaining and critical 
right? A, a complaining spirit, a, a critical spirit often reveals idolatry in our hearts. We complain because we don't have what we want. And so we fight, we argue, we quarrel to get what we want. And you see how in, in this tragic family circumstance, sin begets sin, right? Jacob responds to Rachel with anger, right? He says in verse 3, am I in the place of God? Right? What, what, what he says is technically correct, but these are words not spoken in love. No, these are words spoken in frustration, not faith. And unlike his father Isaac, who prayed for his barren wife, Rebecca, there is no mention of Jacob praying for Rachel. He doesn't pray for her. In fact, it, it sounds like he is blaming God for his wife's predicament. Now, I, I think this is an opportune time to ask the husbands among us some questions, myself included. Husbands, don't neglect our spiritual responsibility to care for our wives. So I think a basic question is to ask, you know, how are we praying for them? Now, yes, we can pray for their circumstances, we can pray for their physical well-being, but I think we need to pray more than that for them. Now, pray that our wives will have joy and contentment in God, especially in trials. Pray that God will help our wives submit their desires to His will and to His Word. Pray that God will replace their fear with faith and their worry with worship, I think basically pray for our wives' spiritual well-being. Pray that they would love God and follow Him. And pray that we ourselves would be faithful examples of what it means to love God, to trust Him, and to follow Him. Jacob may have committed himself to knowing God, to following Him, but his prayerlessness here reveals his need to continue to grow in the faith. Instead of being a spiritual leader to his family, Jacob gives in. I, I think Jacob's silence is very conspicuous in this passage. Right? Basically, the only thing he says is to shout at Rachel. Right? He, he gives in to Rachel's sinful demands. He silently goes along with her worldly solution for her childlessness. Like Abraham earlier, who listened to Sarah and slept with her servant, Hagar, Jacob sleeps with his wife's servant, Bilhah, in order to give Rachel children. And Bilhah gives birth to two sons, Dan and Naphtali, and their names reflect the condition of Rachel's heart. She is relying on her children for vindication. That's the word Dan, right? I, I'm vindicated because I have this child now. And then Naphtali means wrestling, right? She's trying to outdo her sister. So every time she calls his name, Naphtali, Naphtali, that's a reminder that I've wrestled and won and I've beat my sister at having children. Right? So her name, the names really reveal the state of Rachel's heart. Now, some of us may be experiencing the pain of childlessness. And may God help us to submit our fears and desires to Him. And I pray that God will also help us to remember His grace and goodness so that we prayerfully entrust our burdens as well as our sorrows to Him. Childlessness is a difficult, difficult thing. It, it is a very tough thing. And I pray that God will really work in our hearts. So even if our circumstances do not change, He will help us by His grace to trust Him. You know, may God also guard our hearts from unbelief, from doubt, from worldliness, now, friends, if, if you are struggling with childlessness, can I encourage you to speak with a godly Christian who can help you, who can encourage you to persevere in the faith, to set your hope in God. Once more, sin begets sin. Leah, not wanting to lose out, also does the same thing, doesn't she? She gives a servant to Jacob, and Zilpah, Leah's servant, bears two sons, Gad and Asher. You know, and, and, and in this whole situation, Jacob cuts a rather pathetic figure. Like Isaac, you know, his father, who was an inattentive father, Jacob is an inattentive husband. You see how Jacob has allowed this toxic atmosphere to fester in his household. You know, husbands, again, I pray that God would help us 
to repent of our passivity in the home. May He give us grace to self-sacrificially love our families by caring for their spiritual well-being. This is an area that I need growth in as well, and I appreciate you all praying for me in this area. I, I pray that we would begin, if we haven't done so, that we would begin conversations with our wives, you know, humbly asking them, you know, how can I better lead the family? How can I care for you spiritually? How can I encourage you and our children, if you have children? You know, single men, you know, what can you do, right? You're not married. But I think you can also pursue Christ so that, and, and ask Him to help you to better love and serve others around you. That, that's what it means to be uh, a, a man who cares for others. Love and serve those around you for a spiritual good. Number three, two rival sisters make a superstitious deal. Let me read for us from verses 14 to 24. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honour me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So the, the, the rivalry between Leah and Rachel continues, and they continue to just jostle for position with Jacob, you know, kind of rather helplessly stuck in the middle. And they haggle over the mandrakes that Reuben, Leah's son, finds in the field. So what's going on here? Well, mandrakes, according to the superstition of that day, were plants, right? and they were superstitiously believed to be aphrodisiacs that enhanced fertility. The Hebrew term for mandrakes is love fruit. So the childless Rachel makes a deal with Leah for these mandrakes. Why? Because she thinks superstitiously that these plants will help her to have children. In return, Leah gets to spend a night with Jacob because she has hired him. You know, th this is a really tragic turn of events. Right? You see how transactional this marriage relationship has become between Leah and Jacob. Right? Leah, Jacob's family has degenerated into dysfunctionality. Jacob himself has become a pawn in his own marriage to be bargained over by his two rival wives. You know, some of us know the pain of a fractured family. But the sovereign God can work even in our brokenness to fulfill His promises and to accomplish His plan. Despite the superstition and the strife that we see in these verses, God graciously grants more children to Leah. It is God who opens the womb, not mandrakes. I think what we're meant to see in these verses is that Leah has no mandrakes, but she bears two children, two sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and then afterwards a daughter named Dinah. And, and this passage is making the point to us that our lives are not the result of chance or superstition or luck or fate. Rather, it is a personal God who works all things for the good of His people. And this God calls us to turn away from any false beliefs or superstitions we may have, to trust in Him. And, and Rachel begins to realize this as well. 
right? Her, her efforts to manipulate the situation to get children have failed time and time again. Now, after resorting to all these worldly methods, Rachel now realizes that it is God who opens the womb, not mandrakes. You see how God allows us to exhaust our means of self-help. He brings us to an end of ourselves. He helps us to see our utter helplessness, to change anything. And he wants to teach us to depend on Him alone. And He's the only one who can resurrect a barren womb. And Rachel learns to pray. You begin to see Rachel take steps of faith rather than superstition. Rachel begins to cry out to God for help. That's why it says in verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her, which implies that she's praying for once. God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Now at last, Rachel has a child of her own and she names him Joseph, whose name refers to how God has taken away. Joseph has that meaning, taken away. Interestingly enough, Joseph also means add, meaning that Rachel hopes that God will add children to her. And God indeed will answer her prayer and God will bless her with another son, Benjamin, later on, although Rachel will die shortly after his birth. And to say God remembers doesn't mean that God suddenly recalls something that he has forgotten but rather that, that term, God remembers, it's a covenantal term. It's a term that expresses God's faithfulness to His promises. God calls His promises to mind. He intentionally remembers them so that He can keep them. Right? Exodus 2 uses the same expression of God. Exodus 2 verse 24 says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, beloved, if, if we trust in God's Son, Jesus, Jesus brings us into a new covenant relationship with God. And we can be assured that God will always remember us. God will never leave us or forsake us. Just as He remembered Rachel, He will remember His people. And notice how the account of the birth of Jacob's children is bracketed by two verses emphasizing how it is the Lord who gives life and opens the womb. So this is how we're meant to understand what's going on in these verses. As we see these two women going at it, right, battling each other to have more children, right, behind it all is a sovereign God who works even through human strife and sinfulness to accomplish His good purposes. Right, look, look at verse 20, 31 in chapter 20, 29 and verse 22 in chapter 30, similar phrasing. And these two verses bracket this whole section, helping us to see that God is the one who remembers. God is the one who opens the womb. So through all this strife and through all this brokenness and division and flaws, God is the one keeping His promise to multiply Abraham's offspring. Abraham, who had only one son and two grandsons, now has 12 great-grandchildren. Beloved, the key lesson for us here is that God's blessings cannot be worked for. We cannot earn them. We cannot manipulate Him or circumstances to get them. His blessings come to us not through human effort, but they come to us through a faithful God who keeps His word because of His grace and mercy. Therefore, have faith in Him, for He is faithful. And finally, let's read the last part of our passage, verses 25 to 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I found favour in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you 
and how your livestock has fed with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be to you as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock so that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. (laughs) What on earth is going on here? Okay, let's, let's look at this bit by bit. So after Rachel gives birth to Jacob, uh, sorry, after J- Rachel gives birth to Joseph, Jacob is eager to return home. You know, what was supposed to be a temporary escape from his brother Esau has become 14 long years of indentured servanthood to Laban, his father-in-law. Also, Jacob is ready now to leave. Right? You know, note that Jacob has not received a wage for 14 years, right? Because the, the 14 years that he's worked are to work for those two wives, and Rachel. So you can see how Jacob is now eager to kind of start on his own, right? That's why he says, when shall I provide for my own family? Well, but the Laban, the ever-scheming father-in-law, is reluctant to lose his cash cow, right? He says that Laban has learned by divination that he has been blessed because of Jacob. You know, this, this tells us something about the kind of man Laban is. Right. Laban learns by divination. What's divination? Divination is a pagan practice. Right. Divination is, you know, you know, those of you who, who often, maybe who've, you've gone to temples before, and before becoming a Christian, right, they, they practice divination, don't they? Divination is that kind of practice where you're trying to just by lots or something find out what, what, what the situation is. Laban doesn't believe God. Laban is no worshipper of the Lord. Why do I say that? Because God himself has spoken his word that he will bless those who bless Abraham's offspring and he will curse those who curse Abraham's offspring. So Laban could have known by God's word what's happening here, that if he blesses Jacob, he himself will be blessed. But instead, Laban chooses to rely on superstitious pagan practices, divination, to find these things out. And Laban offers to pay Jacob a wage to get him to stay, but Jacob refuses. And instead, Jacob makes this offer to Laban. He says to Laban that I will pasture your flock in return for every speckled and spotted sheep and goat and every black lamb. So that would be Jacob's own wage. and, And the calculative Laban is more than happy to accept uh, this is maybe where it gets a bit confusing. None of us here are shepherds by profession, I don't think. I'm not talking about spiritual shepherds, but actual shepherds of physical animals. Uh, 
So that, what's going on here? Well, Laban is more than happy to accept Jacob's offer because he knows that speckled and spotted sheep and goats as well as black lambs are very uncommon. He knows that Jacob will lose out in this deal. But that's not enough for Laban. Right? Just to make sure, he removes all the speckled and spotted and black animals. Just to make sure. And then he puts these animals in the charge of his sons. And then he moves his sons three days' journey away from Jacob's flock so that there will be no opportunity, no accidental chance that these speckled and black animals would ever breed with Jacob's flock. So basically, humanly speaking, Jacob will have no chance, no chance of having any speckled, spotted or black animals. That's, what, that's what's going on here. And you think, why would Jacob make such a bad deal? You know, Jacob is not some newbie, rookie shepherd. Right? He, he knows animals well. And the flock has prospered under his care. So why on earth would Jacob make such a bad deal with Laban? You know, what happens next is confusing, right? Because there's, a, there's this thing with sticks and troughs, right? So J Jacob peels off uh, streaks in these sticks, so that they have speckles on these sticks. Then he puts them in front of the troughs, and then the animals will breed as they look at these sticks. So what's going on here? Well, Jacob's practice is based on some rather dubious animal husbandry. So Jacob believes that if I do this, then I can produce striped, speckled, and spotted animals by having the single-coloured animals breed in front of these spotted, speckled, and striped sticks. And what's even more amazing is that this, is, this actually happens. Jacob actually gets animals that are striped, speckled, and spotted. So you know, what, what's happening here? Right? Verse 43 says, Jacob's, Jacob has growing prosperity. Right? Verse 43, the man increased greatly and had, and had large flocks. Now, did, did Jacob somehow manage to beat the odds through his own cleverness and resourcefulness? Is this Jacob's doing? Well, the, the explanatory note is found in chapter 31, which we'll look at next week, but just a few verses from chapter 31, verses 7 to 9. Right? Jacob says this to his wives in that chapter. God did not permit Laban to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be the wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So Jacob is blessed, not because he is clever and resourceful with the sticks, not because of his dubious practice of animal husbandry, but Jacob is blessed because God is the one who graciously protects and provides for him. Not because, Jacob's, not because of Jacob's ingenuity, but because of God's faithfulness. So why on earth did Jacob go through all the trouble? with the sticks and the troughs? Well, I think because Jacob is still given to self-reliance. He, he doesn't quite trust God completely to bring this about. You know, if, if you look at Rachel and you look at Jacob, they have a lot in common. Maybe that's why they're so attracted to each other. Both of them are perhaps maybe type A personalities who get things done. They like making plans. They like doing things to to get what they want. Rachel with the mandrakes, Jacob with this rather dubious practice of junk science. I think that these two characters teach us some things about ourselves. How are we also prone to rely on our own intelligence, our skill, our competence, instead of God? You know, I, 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 need, I need to hear this for myself too because often I get so busy planning and doing that I forget to pray. I don't bring my request to God. I, I kind of plan and do first and then prayer just comes along the way as opposed to really praying and depending on God. You know, we live in a culture that takes pride in self-sufficiency, in personal merit, in getting things done. No, acknowledging our helplessness and need for grace does not come naturally to us. This is not where we live. This is not who we are. 
Like Jacob, we need reminders that we are saved by grace. Not because of what we do, not because of the work of our hands, but because of a God who is faithful. And I, I fear that sometimes we bring the culture of the world into the church. Right? So, so, for example, the church, we put up false fronts. Right? We, we, we try to appear strong and well put together when actually our lives are falling apart. We, we're embarrassed to share prayer requests with one another because we don't want to sound like we are needy. Friends, may not be so. May not be so. Right? We need help. All of us need help. And we, we shouldn't feel embarrassment sharing with our brothers and sisters that, hey, pray for me. Pray for me. I, I really need prayer. I really need practical help. Why the embarrassment? Right? Really pray for one another. Know one another's needs. Pray for one another. That's why God brings us together as His spiritual family. I think when we, when we do that, I think it shows that we really understand grace. If we express need, I think we begin to show that we understand what it means to receive salvation by grace alone. Not because we're well put together, not because we're strong, but because we're weak and needy. Now put yourselves in the shoes of an Israelite reading Genesis, because that, that's the original audience. Right? So, you know, Israel would have just come out of Egypt, you know, and they were, they were reading this as, or rather, Moses could have been preaching this to them. You know, did God save you from Egypt because of your wonderful pedigree? Did God save you from Egypt because of your glorious ancestry? Hardly. Genesis 29 and 30 is the story of how great God graciously works in and through flawed people to fulfill his promises. God blessed Jacob with prosperity and children amid sin and strife. Now, one of the cartoons that my kids love to watch is this one called Encanto. Some of you may have seen that. It came out, I think, last year. Uh, it's a good cartoon, so those of you who haven't seen it, maybe I recommend, recommend it to you. Uh, so, in, in Encanto, there is a family, and within that family, there's this particular character named Bruno. Right? Some of you may know the song. We don't talk about Bruno. It's a really popular song. Bruno is the embarrassing black sheep of the family. Right? No, one, no one wants to mention him. Right? He, he's, he just does strange things. You know, he, he doesn't fit in with the rest of the family. So that song, right? we don't talk about Bruno. You know, and, and I think that's so true, right? We typically highlight the nice parts of our family tree, right? But we don't expose the skeletons in our closet. But, you know, that's so different from what we read here, right? The Bible is painfully honest about the flaws and failures of its main characters. Jacob, who's a patriarch of Israel, and you see the mess of his life. I think this, this passage encourages us to be spiritually honest with God and with one another. We can be open with one another about our sins and our struggles. We can share prayer requests with one another. We can talk about need and help. We can confess sin to one another. Why? Because the focus is not on human merit, friends. The focus is not on how nice or good we are. The focus is on God's grace and mercy. He is the one who raises up 12 tribes of Israel from a fractured family with a faithless husband and warring wives. And God will keep His promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because He is gracious, not because we are deserving. And indeed, these promises are fulfilled in Christ. So think about it. This is Jesus' family tree. This is his ancestry. This is where our Messiah comes from. And he's very honest about the skeletons in his closet. Jesus is Abraham's promised offspring, descended from Judah, the son of praise, 
And, and Jesus' family tree includes such flawed characters as Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. And I think this reveals the kind of Messiah Jesus is. Jesus did not come to save nice people or well-put-together people. Jesus came to save sinners, not those who are right in their own eyes, but those who humbly confess that they're spiritually bankrupt, that there's nothing that they can do to deserve or earn salvation. And Jesus died and rose from the dead so that sinners like us can be forgiven and adopted into His family. So this is our family tree as well if we have trusted in Jesus. And we don't talk about the skeletons in our closet. We don't talk about Bruno. Yet, think about this. Jesus is not ashamed. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2. He was made like us, yet without sin. He laid down his life for sinners like us. And therefore, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Beloved, God's grace is greater than our sin. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we praise you. Father, as we hear your word, we are cut to the heart. We, re we recognize that we have done nothing to deserve your favor. We have done nothing to earn our standing before you. But we come to you as a needy, broken people. We come to you as unworthy sinners. And we pray and we cry out to you for help. So Father, we pray that you would move in our hearts by your spirit move powerfully in us, help us to see the sufficiency of Christ. Help us to see that in Him we have a gracious and loving Saviour, one who is gentle and lowly, one who receives us on the basis of His goodness, not on the basis of ours. So Father, give us hope, give us courage and confidence to come to You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. May we know You, may we trust You, Help us rejoice in the free grace that you have lavished upon us through your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.